You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by pastor of Next Generations, Mark Hockley. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome. It's great to be with all of you. I see you're all scared of me. You all chose the back two-thirds. That's all right. I commend the ones in the front. I'm braving it up here. Uh, my name is Pastor Mark, one of the pastors here. And um, first off, I just want to say a great big happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in the room. We are extremely grateful for you. Um, you are a wonderful blessing um, to our body of believers here. And so we just say happy Mother's Day to you. I also think it's good to acknowledge that for some of us, um, it can be a day of mixed emotions. Um, for some of us, we are missing our mothers today. And so we just want to acknowledge that. And also, um, some of you may be mourning, maybe not having the mom that you wish that you had. Um, and just want to acknowledge that as well. Um, and so for the mothers that are striving um, to love God and love their kids, well, um, you are a tremendous blessing. And so we say thank you. To you for that. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive into the book of Titus. God, thank you so much for our beautiful day, and thank you for the chance to celebrate our beautiful mothers. God, thank you for um, everything that they pour into um, their kids and their families. Lord, we thank you for the faithful service of our older mothers whose children have um, come out of the home, and yet they'll always still be mothers. There's always work to be done. Um, and mothering, and we, we thank you, and also bless um, the younger mothers with children um, still in their home, in the, in the work that they are doing there. I pray that you would just bless and commend all of these mothers, God, that would they rem- be reminded of how important they are in the work that they are doing, that they would be encouraged on, on the days that are hard, on the days they feel the mom guilt. God, I pray that you would remind them um, that they are tremendous blessings, and you've given them a great and beautiful task, God, and if they're seeking you, God, with all of their hearts, um, that they are doing well, Lord, that's what you've asked of them, and so we just pray that you would bless them in that way. We also pray for all of us, God, as we dive into the book of Titus, would you help us, God, to have our eyes open to what you would have us see in your word? Would people not see me? Would people see you? Would people remember you? in your words. And God, I pray as a church, Lord, that we really would, um, all of us, have you as our all in all, that you would be preeminent in our lives, that you would be above everything else. Lord, it's so easy to put other things above you. I mean, yet nothing even comes close to value. Nothing comes close to the worth of having Christ on the throne of your life. So I pray that you would help us in that. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so the book of Titus, um, we are taking a break from um, our Uncomfortable Conversation series for three weeks while Pastor Ben um, prepares to go away and then is gone um, to India. And so we're going to look at the book of Titus, one chapter each week for three weeks, so you can read ahead um, in future weeks if you're looking for that. So today we're going to look at chapter one, and our title is Godly Elders Are Born Out of Godly Christians. 
And here's our outline for today. So I'm going to give you a little bit of the context of the book, which is always helpful to do. Before you, before you study a book, you want to know the context. And if you're in the hermeneutics class, you've heard me drone on about that. So I'm going to practice what I preach and give you some context. Next, we're going to look high level just at where the passage um, is taking us. We want to watch the flow of it, see what God is saying to us. And then in the last two sections, we're going to nail down on some of those qualifications and look more in depth at those together in a couple of different ways. And so let's start with the context of the book of Titus. You can see up on the screen there, we've got a map um, of the Mediterranean, and you can see the arrow there pointing to the island of Crete. And Crete is where um, the book of Titus, where the letter to Titus was written to. So Titus was ministering to Christians, to these churches on Crete, And Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes him a letter to encourage him and to help him because these are new churches that are being set up on the island of Crete. And these new churches that were set up on the island of Crete, the um, the ground was very hard. Um, Epimenides, a well-respected 6th century poet, called his own people uh, always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Not a great um, ringing endorsement of their character. Um, In fact, um, Cretans actually became synonymous with liars. So colloquially, if you called someone a Cretan, you said, hey, you're a Cretan, you're calling them a liar. That's how perverse um, it was in their culture. And so like we've talked about with other books, um, this has a similar story. Their background in culture and in thinking and language is Greek. Why? Right? If you remember, we've talked about the history in the past. So basically everything that you can see there in, um, the, in the map at one point was conquered by Alexander the Great, um, who was Greek. Right? And so they spread Greek culture throughout all of that. And so even though at this time um, Alexander the Great's empire has fallen, they left behind um, a culture and a language that was rooted in Greek And so that's our context. We've got the culture in the background is Greek, and we've got new churches being planted in hard ground. And so the Apostle Paul is going to write a letter to Titus to help encourage him and to help him know how should he set up the church? How is the church supposed to operate? And so we're going to see a number of things over the next few weeks as we go. But let's read our text together. Starting in verse 1, chapter 1 of Titus, it says, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. In the hope of eternal light, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. For he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to 
um, rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, um, there's our guy here, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the command of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So that's our text this morning. And so let's look at it from a high level view first. The first thing I want you to see is that he's going to build the entire letter on the gospel. And so we're going to refer back to this constantly. Let's look at the introduction, verses 1 through 4, and work our way through. So he says, Paul introduces himself, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says right here, he says, what's the purpose for the letter? He's right there. He says, for the sake of God's elect. And so what's the purpose of the letter? The purpose of the letter is to write to the church, because the church is made up of God's elect. And then it says this what? In their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And so then he's going to tell them, what does he want them to remember? What does he want them to know? He wants them to know the knowledge of the truth. And what's the knowledge of the truth? Right? Ultimately, it's God, who God is, and the gospel, what God has done for us. That's the truth, right? God is truth. And so what he's saying to them is, if you know God, if you know the gospel, that should result in you moving towards godliness. That's what he's trying to tell them. And he says, in the hope of eternal life. What's that? The gospel. In case you forgot, it's supposed to be done in the gospel. And there should be hope. And then he tells it where the gospel is rooted in and why they should do this. He gives them the why. And he says, which God who never lies. Right? And so first off, I think it's funny. Right? There's some good irony here. Because what did we just say is um, synonymous with the Cretans? They're all liars. Right? You can never tell if someone's telling you the truth. And so what he says to them is, just like God who never lies, he's like, just like none of you, the difference is God right? who never lies. This is where the gospel is rooted in. And so I think there's an element of irony that's funny, but it's also probably very serious, right? Because as a Cretan, they could never really tell who was telling them the truth. But he's saying, you can trust God because he never lies. And then look what he says next. He says, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So he says, the gospel I preached to you, which was rooted in God himself, who is the truth. And then he says this beautiful truth. He says, which he set in motion before the foundation of the world. Um, one of the things that we're talking about in the hermeneutics class on Tuesday that God's just really been blessing me with. Um, we were talking about it relating to theophanies. Uh, but in this sense, we just see this here, this beautiful truth that God worked before history began, right? Before the ages began. He's also working in history, at least in part for my salvation, for me, right? We know that fully he worked those things out for the good of the church, right? 
But if you're a Christian, what are you part of? The church, right? And so God moved before history and in history, at least in part, for you right now in this moment that you would be blessed by him and know him. That's a cool thought, and that's a great encouragement to us. And so what's Paul saying to this new and messy church? He's saying, remember the gospel, which is built on the unshakable truth of a God who doesn't lie, a God who saved you, so live like it. That's what he wants them to do. And then he's going to tell them how that should work out. So the first thing he does is he gives them qualifications for elders. And just a note here, you're going to see overseer, elder, pastor in some of these verses we look at. Um, Same thing, right? Those are all the same thing. They're all talking about the same office. So in this church, um, the difference between pastor and elder has nothing to do with authority. We are all absolutely equal, whether paid or lay. The only difference as pastor, I guess, is that we get, we're blessed to be paid, to be able to give more time to do the same work. And so I just want you to know that as we start. The other thing I want you to know, you can stick a bulletin or something you got in your purse. Um, in this, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there's a parallel passage that also talks about these qualifications for elders. And so we're going to refer to it a few times because it's helpful in understanding a few things as we go. So just know that that's in there. But next, let's look at these qualifications for elders So the first instruction that Paul gives to Titus when setting up the church is that they are to appoint elders. They are to appoint shepherds, leaders, men that will take care of the people of God. Men that will teach them how to live as Christians in light of the gospel that he just talked about. right? In light of knowing God, in light of knowing what God's done for them. And I want you to notice a couple of things on the list here uh, because a couple of them are very interesting. First, I want you to think about this. If you were making a list for the qualifications for elders, if you were in charge of writing the job description, what would you put on it? Think about for a second. What would you put on it? Would you put a gifted teacher maybe or an exemplary leader or one who has a sure calling, one who can't see himself doing anything else but ministry? What would you put on your list? And I think those are good things, and some of those make it into the... um, the qualifications here, but there's an overarching theme that we see here in the text, and maybe you can see it. What does it say? It says overarching, over everything else, an elder is to be above reproach. And so what's going to happen, actually, if you look at the list, is the list is basically giving examples of what qualifies a man to be above reproach, and also a list of what would disqualify him from being above reproach. And it's not an exhaustive list, it's not a perfect list, but it's saying these are the things you're looking for. These are the things that would disqualify you. These are the things that you are not looking for. So that's number one. The second thing that I want you to see is this. Maybe you noticed this already, the amount of disproportionate words that apply to a man's character compared to the amount that discuss his ability. Do you notice that there? Look at all those words. How many of those relate to character versus how many of those relate to ability? God's saying that character in godliness vastly outweighs ability. And yet we, so often, in our performance-driven age, that seeped into the church. 
And so often we're looking for performance. But what instead should we be looking for? Character, right? Because who drives the performance? It's not the pastor. It's not the elders. It's God, right? So we look for character because that's what God looks for. And we leave the performance to God. Um, the other thing I want you to see is in, in 1 Timothy 3, 1, um, right at the start of that list of qualifications of elders, um, Paul writes this to Timothy, and it's very interesting. He says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. Men, let me ask you a question. Do you aspire to such a noble task? Do you aspire to be used by God in this way? Do you aspire to be qualified? Regardless of whether or not God chooses to use you in that way or not, I think as men we should all aspire to be qualified in this way. And you'll see building on my argument in a little bit. And number three, let's look for the work that the elders have to do. So here's the qualifications. Now here's the work. Here's the task that they had, and it was a big problem in Crete, and the same things pour into our churches as well. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. As far as insubordinate goes, um, I really just want to say thank you to you as a church, um, because we are really, truly blessed with tremendous unity. I have not come across another church, another um, group of pastors who, um, their annual, no one's annual meeting goes better than ours. Right? And that is truly a blessing, and that's because of you guys. And so I just want to say thank you for that. Uh, we are extremely grateful for that, and let's continue to guard that well together. As elders, we feel so blessed that so many of you are willing to give us your trust, and you're willing to follow, and you're willing to give us the benefit of the doubt when you disagree with something. We also want to thank those of you who, when you do have concerns, um, you don't talk behind our backs, but you come to us humbly and gently with God's word open, looking to humbly and gently point us towards the truth, um, because we recognize that we are far from perfect. So for those of you who are doing that, we say thank you. As far as empty talk goes, the Greek word for empty talk essentially means an idle talker, one who utters empty, senseless things. And so we don't want to be empty talkers. And we could talk a lot about empty talk. But there's one thing that I think of when I think of empty talk, and it's this. Pretending to give godly encouragement and tending to give godly wisdom, but then not actually pointing people to the word of God. That's empty, right? That's senseless. So I would encourage you, when someone comes to you for advice, don't point them to your own wisdom first. You need to point them to the truth in God's word. And then after that, you can come through, give practical help for how you've lived that out in your life. But the advice must be rooted in God or it's empty and it's useless, right? And this is part of the reason we encourage you to read your Bible, right? You don't just read your Bible for yourself, but you read your Bible that you might be able to help others and point them towards the truth in God's word. And finally, with deceivers, just be aware, we... I don't think too many people wake up as, and grow up and be like, I can't wait to be a deceiver, right? That's not normally how it works. Normally, it's through unguarded minds that people become deceivers. And so I would tell you this, be very wise what you listen to, what you find on the internet, 
especially in today's age, and be humble if someone's correcting you. You need to be very careful with who you're listening to and what they're telling you. You need to weigh it all. I hope, I've told you guys this many times. You weigh what I'm saying. right? I want you to weigh what I say against God's word. It's important because I know I'm not perfect either. Right? So we need to weigh what we're listening to against God's word. And so what do we see here? So these insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, and what are they supposed to do? The elders, their job is to silence them, right? And why are they supposed to be silenced? Because they're not teaching the truth. And so the first rebuke to the Cretans is that they don't know the truth of the gospel. They either have it wrong or they have it twisted or they have it self-centered. It's not the pure gospel. That's rebuke number one. Then look at the second rebuke there. It says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are what? Always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And so what's the second rebuke? The second rebuke is for how they're living. That's rebuke number two. And they're connected together. I want you to notice that. If you look back to verse one for a second, what does it say? It says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and what? Their knowledge of the truth, right, which we said is their knowledge of God, their knowledge of the gospel, which accords with godliness, right? So when, you're, when your mind is messed up, when you're not feeding it truth, that comes out in ungodliness instead of godliness. That's why both are connected. We need to know the truth, and then we need to live it out. But what's the second problem? You can know the truth, and what? Not live it out. And he says, that's not good either. We need to know the truth, and it should accord with godliness. It should be lived out. And if either of those things aren't happening, if your doctrine's off, or if your life is off, then what are the elders to do? It says, therefore what? Rebuke them sharply. They are to come and to correct. Right? And so I would encourage you that if um, we come to you, or another brother and sister comes to you and says, hey... I think this thing's off. Weigh that carefully. Listen to them. Because you know how, how hard it is, right? To get up the courage to go to someone and try to correct them. That's challenging. So if someone cares enough about you to do that, I would listen closely. They're not God. You need to weigh it. But I would listen closely. But what's the purpose for the rebuke? Do you see it there in the text? Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Why? That they may be sound in the faith. That's the goal. The goal is not to slam you and say, I can't believe you're this horrible, awful person. The goal when you're being corrected, the goal when you're being rebuked is that you may be sound in the faith. So let's do a little follow-up exam um, and look at something from last summer. Last summer, if you remember back um, at Matt and Whitney's farm when we had our big um, party together, um, out on in their field, we studied Proverbs, and we studied correction, and we studied rebuke. And so we're going to do a little follow-up exam, and I want to ask you this. How is that going in your life? Are you better right now at hearing rebuke, at hearing correction, than you were a year ago? Are you more humble and willing to hear that? Have you put into practice what we talked about? Do you seek correction from others? Do you seek correction from your spouse and your kids, 
Christian friends that know you well? Do you even have Christian friends that would know you well enough to correct you? I hope the answer is yes. Right? My, my goal is that you're nodding. I don't, I'm not hoping to like catch you and be like, oh, none of you did what we said. Right? My goal is that you're like, yes, yes, I can see myself growing in this area. I don't get joy in seeing you struggle. But we have to be honest with ourselves. Because here's the reality. I got a lot of great feedback from you really kind people on that sermon. Oh, that's a really good sermon. Did we just leave it at good knowledge of the truth? Or did it translate to growing in godliness? Because I'd say a year is probably enough time to find that out. So I would encourage you. I hope for some of you, you can say, yes, I've grown in this. And if you can't, I would encourage you to consider the things that Paul is teaching the Cretans here. Because I want you to grow. Paul wants them to go, and God clearly desires that for us as Christians, to hear the truth and to grow in godliness. And here's the flip side. The last one, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. This is what I would never want for you, right? This is what I would never want for you to profess to know God. But when we actually look at your life, denies him by their works. I want you to ask this maybe on the way home or when you're at home quiet this afternoon alone. Ask the Holy Spirit this. Just pray this simple prayer. Read the verse and then say, God, Holy Spirit, is this me? Three simple words. Is this me? And then don't talk. Don't then come up with a list of why you think it's you. Just listen. Listen to God. Because we don't want to be Christians that profess to know God, but deny him by our works. And so that's the overview of the text. That's, it's, pretty, like, it's pretty easy, right? It's pretty logical. You can see he's going to build the whole letter on the gospel. He says, this is what the church is built on. Here's how I want you to set it up. I want you first to get these elders and hear some of the work that they've got to start doing. That part's pretty easy. Now we're going to circle back and we're going to look at some of the qualifications for elders. And the first one that we're going to look at is this. We are all called to be qualified. And so what we're going to do is I want you to strap in, hold on. We're going to go through all the different qualifications, both positive and negative. And I want to show you how all the qualifications in Titus are something that God calls all of us to do as Christians. And so I'm going to take each of the qualifications and show you one or two verses where God calls all of us to do the exact same thing. Because what he's calling us to is everything. So let's look at it here. First one, above reproach. Genesis 17, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be what? Blameless. Blameless is synonymous with above reproach. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. How are you blameless? If you walk in the law of the Lord. Philippians 2, that you may be blameless and innocent. As Christians, we're all called to be above Reproach. What about the husband of one wife? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become what? One flesh. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. How is it defiled? When there's more than one, either husband or wife. And his children are believers. Proverbs 22 train up a child in the way that he should go. 
Um, this qualification is probably one of the hardest ones. So if you're feeling uneasy about it, uh, we're going to circle back to that one at the end and talk a little bit more about that. So just know that. Number four, not arrogant. Instead, what should we be? Humility, right? And humility count others more significant than yourselves. And elders not to be quick-tempered. All of us are called to be what? Slow to anger, according to James chapter 1. Also, for those of you who are writing furiously, I will send this to Alyssa so she can post it with um, all the sermon sermons, um, where you find the sermons under resources so that you don't have to write furiously and you can come back and look at some of these after as well. Not a drunkard. Number six, Ephesians 5, do not get drunk with wine. That's to everyone. Not violent. What's the opposite of violence? Gentleness. That's what we're all called to be, right in the fruits of the Spirit. Not greedy. I love this verse. This is a really cool verse. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What a good reminder for us in today's age, is it not? It's a good one to put up in your home. Number nine, be hospitable. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to show hospitality to one another. I didn't highlight the other part. Without grumbling. That's important. Um, What's the flip side of that? Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Do you see what happened in there? We're supposed to show hospitality both to the church and also to strangers. Do we show hospitality to both? It's a good question for both of us. Love good, and elders should love good. All of us are to do what? Love must be sincere. Hate to evil, cling to what is good. How do you cling to what is good? It's through love. That's how you cling to what is good. 11, self-controlled. That list in 2 Peter chapter 1, for all of us, we are to add to knowledge self-control. We're all called to this. Upright. Psalm 25, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. God is upright. He instructs sinners to follow him, just like the elder's qualification. Holy, Leviticus 11 says this, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And who else says this in Matthew? Jesus, right? We're all called to strive towards holiness, be sanctified. We're making it through 14, disciplined, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. We're supposed to hold firm to the word, right? But all of us are supposed to do what? So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. What's the letter that Paul wrote to those brothers and sisters that they are supposed to hold to. That's the Bible, right? That's scripture, that we would hold to the word, able to teach sound doctrine. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children that they would learn how to love God. 17, be able to rebuke false teaching, right? What's false teaching? You're supposed to see it that no one takes you captive to philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so instead, what should we do? We should use Scripture 
for reproof, and for correction. That's what we are called to do as Christians. And so I hope you can see here through examples that we are all called to be qualified. And God is the ultimate example of all of these. I told the first service that um, if we weren't already at 78 slides um, and we had a bunch more time, I would have added another set of slides that showed you how every single one of these things can be found perfectly in the character of God. Every single thing that he's called the church to, everything that he's called the elders to, is found first and foremost in himself. And so the structure that we can see here is pretty clear, right? He calls the church to follow his examples, and then he calls elders whose knowledge of the truth is producing fruit, they're growing in godliness, they're growing in Christ-likeness, to be an example to everyone, to lead them in the same way that everybody together is going. That's the model that God's laid out for the church. David Mathis sums it up really well this way. He says, to be clear, what Christ requires of his pastor elders is not simply for qualification to enter the office. Rather, these virtues are the ongoing daily graces needed to serve well in the office. Yet these two are the qualities Christ means to grant in growing measure to his whole church. They should be for all of us. And now let's end with this. Um, We're going to do a little word study. We don't have time to look at all the words, but sometimes you look at a list and you're like, these words, what do these words really mean? And so we're going to look at a few of them together. Let's start with above reproach because it's that overarching one for our whole text. What do we mean? What, What are we saying when we said we're looking for men who are above reproach, right? We know that we're all called to be qualified in that way, but we see in God's word that God calls men to fill the office of elder. But what do we say? What are we looking for? We're not looking for perfect men. Like Pastor Ben said, there's no such thing as a perfect man or perfect woman. Those don't exist. Um, But if you look at some churches' job descriptions, they might disagree with you. Um, If you read job descriptions for pastors and elders, some churches are only looking for someone that's a little bit better than Jesus. And if you're slightly better than Jesus, you're qualified to lead their church. Um, And so we ask you as a church, please don't ask us to do that because we are infinitely lower than Jesus. And so we're grateful for you in that. Um, But what we're saying um, as men, we're looking for men that are above being reasonably charged with wrong in the first place. We're looking for men, essentially, if you look at that list, we're looking for men who are faithful. That's what we're looking for. Men whose lives aren't open to interpretation. They're not living close to the line and you're not sure if they're going to stumble over it, right? And when we're talking about being above reproach, we're not talking about your ability to trick somebody into thinking that you're above reproach because we're all pretty good at that some days, aren't we? We can all walk into church and we know how to act and we know the good things to say and we know who to talk to and who to avoid if they'll ask us really hard questions, right? We know how to do this well. We're not talking about being, uh, tricking people. We're talking about our genuine character. And ultimately, God discerns that character. But here's a few questions to help you here on earth with this. Would your wife say that you are above reproach? That's a good question to consider, men. Would your kids say, whether they're young or old, would they say you are above reproach? Would your extended family, your friends, your coworkers say, You are above reproach. 
Part of being above reproach is being an example to the flock. If you see First Peter chapter 5, 3, it says this. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but what? But being examples to the flock. Elders are to be an example of all those things that we just looked at, that we are all striving towards together. To be above reproach. Right? Our goal is that our elders would be men that can be looked up to. That younger men and older men can desire to be like. Why? Because they see Christ in them. Men, do you aspire to that? To have younger men or older men look to you and say, I aspire to be like that man in some way because I see Christ in him. There's lots of things that men aspire to be. They look at other men. I wish I was stronger. I wish I was more skilled in this. I wish I was smarter in that. I wish I was bolder. I wish I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you aspire that the younger men and the older men would see Christ in you? And I think one of the primary things that causes a man to be above reproach is the balance between humility and growth. A man who's above reproach doesn't simply use humility as a crutch for never growing or changing. It's always just, oh yeah, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect, right? You can't just always do that, right? It's good to have humility, but you also have to grow. And the flip side of that is that he doesn't try to convey perfection, I won't read it for sake of time, but I want you to see this verse in 1 John 1, 7 through 10. I think perhaps this is the best example in the Bible of sinful yet blameless or above reproach. We see that here so clearly in this text that we are sinful and yet we are blameless. And now ladies, uh, you may be saying you talked a lot to the men. Uh, what, do you, what should I do? What, what do you want me to do to help? I want... I'm, I'm in this too, right? Number one, we looked at, right? Strive to do everything that we saw God calling all of us to do. Um, but if you have a husband, one of the first things that you can do is pray. Pray for his spiritual growth. Ladies, how often do you pray for spiritual growth in your husband? Take all those things that you wish you could change in him, that little list that I know is tucked somewhere in the back of your head, and instead take that to the God who actually changes hearts and actually changes lives and let him do that work instead. Right? So that's, you get on your knees and you pray. And the second is grow in all those things because you're going to model that for him. He's going to see that in you. And that's a beautiful thing, leading by example. And ladies, if you're presently without a husband on earth, I want to encourage you to pray for the men in this church. Would you pray for their spiritual growth? Pray specifically, pray fervently for our body of believers, specifically for these men, because we need men like this. And we should all pray in this way as well, should we not? Right? We should all pray for each other. Pastor Ben talked about brothers and sisters in Christ. What's one of the things that we do as brothers and sisters in Christ? We pray for each other. 
And we pray for our spiritual growth, not just when life is going hard, that's important, but also would we pray for our spiritual growth. I pray this way for you, men and women. I pray for you that you would grow um, specifically. I pray fervently for you. Would you join me in doing that? So ladies, um, if you don't have a husband on this earth, I think you've just been given an extra opportunity to pray in this way. So I would encourage you in that. Let's look at the next one together. Manages his household well. This comes from our parallel passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3. David Mathis, he did some really great work in this stuff. You saw I've used his stuff a few times. It says this, The gratuitously distracted and often unexamined lives of modern unmarried men can be concerning enough. Then the seriousness of the problem rises higher when we say, I do. And even more when we bring children into the world. One of the greatest needs wives and children have, and all the more in our relentlessly distracting age, is dad's countercultural attentiveness. Perhaps human attention has never been more valuable. Today, the world's largest corporations no longer compete for oil, but for human attention. That got me. Is that not true? And when attention is short and scarce, one of the greatest emerging tragedies of this new era is distracted dads. And in the church, it's digital age analog, distracted pastors. Why is this one of the requirements? If you look at 1 Timothy 3, um, the, the logic's pretty simplistic. It says, if a man cannot lead his household well, how will he lead the church well? And so that's why we care so much, men, about you as a husband. That's why we care so much about you as a father. Because when we see how will he care for God's church, what do we see? We see the basic principle is that the home is a training ground for the church. And I think specifically, if you look at this text, look at the words he says. It doesn't say, how will he lead? It says, how will he care for God's church? Caring attentiveness is at the heart of an elder. But it's practiced, and it's grown, and it's maintained in the heart of a father and a husband. Let's look at number two, our own household. If you see that word at the top there, our own household. This phrase is interesting. And I know you're going to say I'm weird, that I find this interesting. That's fair. I'm weird. But look, I want to show you this. The fact is the author has specifically designated his own household to distinguish from what? To distinguish from God's household. Because an elder has two households to care for. He must care for the church and he must care for his own household. But managing one's household, right, and related to his own household, is not just a qualification to check off the list and then just chuck it away. It's an ongoing training ground. It's an ongoing test for leading God's church. If an elder spends a disproportionate amount of time consumed with the church and he can't spend enough time with his family, this is not good. He's disqualifying himself. And the same is true on the other side. If it's disproportionately consumed by his family, he's not going to be able to lead the church well. He must be able to do both. There needs to be a balance. And so church, as elders, we're asking for your help in this area, especially us elders that have young kids, because our responsibilities at home are greater. We, we have that household that's busy and full. Would you partner in helping us do this well? And here's what we're asking of you. 
Would you continue to grow in living as the body? Some of you are already doing this very well, and we're very grateful for that. So here's practically what this looks like, what we're asking you. When something goes wrong in your life, when there's a challenge, or when you need prayer, or when you need to talk to someone, when you need advice, our prayer is both that you would be that person for the person that needs those things, and also that you would have those people to turn to in those moments when you need them. That your first thought in those situations wouldn't be, I need to run to the church, I need to run to an elder, I need to run to a pastor, but instead you would run to a godly friend, the church. That's what we're asking of you because that's how we see God laying it out, how he's modeled it for us. Because here's the reality. We can't be that person for everyone. We can't be that person for all of you. There are six of us, and there are, right now we're averaging 270 of you. Praise God for that, right? So we can't be that to everyone. If everyone comes to us with even one thing, right, that's an immense amount of time. And so here's what we're asking of you. I think since, since we're a family, this is a good example. Um, you've probably done this as a parent talking to your own kids. This is something that I talk to our kids quite a bit. I talk to my kids about how when they help share the workload in our family and they do things around the house, when they help bear each other's burdens and help take care of one another, and then when they work hard to get along so that mom and dad don't have to constantly be stepping in to, um, to referee fights, it gives us the capacity as parents to get help to those who really need it. That's something that we talk to them about quite a bit. And I think the parallel is good in the church as well, right? So here's what we're asking. Would you bear each other's burdens first? Would you pray for each other fervently, right? And if something is too much to bear, yes, please come to us because we care for you, right? And we are going to do our best to help. Um, but in doing this as much as we can, it gives us the chance the proper time to manage our own families well so we don't go and burn ourselves out and disqualify ourselves, um, knowing that this is an ongoing test of qualification, and it also gives us time to lead God's church well. And so if we continue to grow in the body, we will continue to grow our health as a church. And let's talk about that word well for a second there. You see it, his own household, well, right? Isn't that a great qualifier? Right? That's the kind of qualifier that drives any of you wonderful type A people absolutely nuts. Right? You're like, well, what does that mean? This word well, that's so ambiguous. It makes no sense. Uh, you know my wife. She is one of those wonderful type A uh, sisters in Christ. And um, so we got an email from our developer. And they told us that they had tentatively booked um, the paving of our road. But they never gave us a time. They just said, we've tentatively booked it. And the first thing she comes to me, she says, Mark... What does this word tentatively mean? That means nothing to me. I don't know what tentatively means. Why did they even put it in there? Why did they send the email? They've shown me absolutely nothing, right? That's kind of like this word, well, here. What does well mean? It can seem like the bar's so low. Um, the first thing I think of when we say this word well, um, I think there's actually some good grace in this word, don't you think? Because it doesn't say perfect, that you would do things well. But a wise and godly man doesn't take the minimalist approach in his family's life, does he? And a wise elder doesn't do that in the church, right? You're always looking for growth, right, as a man in your family, regularly assessing, praying, and leading towards better. 
Uh, one writer said, active households like living sheep incline towards chaos and need the regular attention and investment of the shepherd, not semi-regular checkups. And isn't that so true in all those lives? I can see it as being super true in my life, especially uh, when you think of sin, right? Sin can be a little bit like whack-a-mole in your life, right? Something pops up and whack, right? And then something else pops up and whack, right? And then this thing that you thought you had already whacked, it pops back up again because you stopped praying about it because you thought you were good, but you realized that was a mistake and you really should have kept praying about it because then you got to whack it again, right? And that's the thing that just constantly happens. And the same thing can happen in parenting, can't it? As soon as you're ready to turn and give yourself a pat on the back as a parent, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, we got this parenting thing figured out. This is easy. Then all of a sudden, what pops up? This other thing that you see in your child's life. And what does it need? Gentle whack, right? That's what we need in our own lives. So it's constantly coming up. There's always things to grow in. There's always ways to be more like Christ in our own lives, in our kids' lives. They need attention. We can't just let things grow. So if you stop working, stop paying attention, then just like whack-a-mole, you're going to have all these creepy little things popping up all over the place in your life. So we have to have attention and care. And that word care, they're circling back to it one more time. Leading God's church um, and leading your household basically consists of two things. They're similar, right? You care for the stuff, right? Money, possessions, property. And then you lead in your care of people in your home right? And many of us gravitate as men towards one or the other. But here's the problem. Many men today neglect both, right? Because if we're honest, the stuff part for a lot of men is easier. Let's take care of the stuff, but the people stuff is hard. But caring for the people, that's where the real work takes place in your home. Men, your first relationship, your first responsibility is to your wife, and there's a unique tension and privilege in caring for her well. And some of you are great examples of this. What's the tension? That you have to simultaneously, you're tasked with providing for her um, with attention and care and growing her spiritually, right? You're, you're investing in her, all the while recognizing that she's a co-manager in your home with you. If you look at 1 Timothy 5.14, it says that women are to manage their household well, just as men are managed to to manage their household well. You're co-managers together. And so what does this look like? It looks like this. For the husband, being head in his home doesn't center on his enjoying the greatest privileges, but on shouldering the greatest burdens. Being head means going ahead, in conflict, and being the first to apologize. It means taking initiative when no one else wants to. It means treating his co-manager with unrelenting kindness, even when she's less than kind, which would never happen. Um, It means exercising true strength by inconveniencing him to secure her good, rather than serving himself by presuming on her. And of course, it includes vigilance in being a one-woman man, Utterly committed in heart, mind, and body to his one wife. The second relationship for many men is our children. Ephesians 6, 4 sums it up nicely because it speaks to both the how fathers should treat their children and also to the what that you should do for your children. It says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You have the how you're supposed to do it and the what 
you are supposed to do. But what is this challenging verse about um, children being believers um, for an elder to be qualified? Let's deal with that now. So there's two basic thoughts for how these are to go. Two basic views. One is, um, if a man's children are not believers or fall away from the faith while he's an elder, then he's disqualified from leadership. That's one way that people would view that verse. The second view is this. The contrast is not made between believing and unbelieving children, but it's between obedient, respectful children and lawless, uncontrolled children. The matter is the children's disobedience, not their eternal state. And as a church, we take the second view, and here's why. So when we look at this text, we see the basic logic um, that flows that if a man can't lead his home well, if he can't gain the respect of his children, and they're not willing to obey and to follow, how will he lead the church? That fits in better with that faithfulness idea. The word pistas is the Greek word that can be translated either believing or it can be translated as faithful. And so when we look at the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 4, or sorry, 3 verse 4, what does it say? It says having children in control, in submission, in obedience. And so then when we swing around to Titus, it would make more sense that that's virtually synonymous with um, Pista having faithful children. Also, we look at the grounding question. The grounding question of 1 Timothy 3, 5 connects the elder's qualifications with his household managerial skills in verse 4. Uh, Number four, personal responsibility. All the requirements of eldership that are listed in this passage are actions of personal responsibility. And so we would expect the requirement uh, regarding his children to fall into that category. And the final one, I think this is perhaps the most important, is this, is that God saves. An elder cannot cause his children to be saved. The work of salvation is done by God and God alone. What's he called to do? Be faithful. God is the one who ultimately makes them saved. We just will look at these quick for sake of time. He must not be arrogant. Here's what I want you to know. Pride disqualifies an elder. So pray for us in this area. You can think you've got everything else checked off the list, and then what happens? Now you're prideful about it, right? Just like that, disqualified. So as we pray, pray for us that we would um, be men who are humble. Also, just so you know, this is the first thing we look for for leaders in the church. First thing we're looking for is humility. So would, um, would we all grow in humility together? And I love this one. I wish we had more time to talk about it. We could have done a sermon on it. He must be a lover of good. Four things I want you to know. Lovers of good believe in good. They look for good. They do good. And they love good. If you believe in good, you know that good runs deeper than evil. So you're not always on the synonym side, right? You're not always that kind of person. You're hopeful for good when you're looking for good. Do you look for good in the world and in what God is doing? Obviously, you're doing good, right? That connects to growing your knowledge of the truth in accordance with godliness. And then the last one, here's a question for you. Did you know that you can do good without loving good? So the question is, do you do good or do you love good? Because those are two different things. Ask God that one. You can meditate on that yourself. Here's our conclusion. Three things. The church is to be built on the hope of the gospel. Right? Number two, elders are appointed as leaders. 
It's all laid out for you. You know how to hold us accountable, right? We ask that you would do that kindly. That'd be great. Um, but we want you to do that for us, right? That's important to us. We also really covet your prayers. Would you pray for us? Um, we covet your kindness and we covet your help in living as the body so that we can manage our own households well in the church and we wouldn't be pulled to one side or the other because there's a lot of pastors, a lot of elders that get pulled into the amount of, of time that they spend in the church and that destroys their families and that's a terrible thing. And so we don't want to, to be there. And then um, our last point, godly elders are born out of godly Christians. That's what we've seen in this text, isn't it? That we're all called to these qualifications. Every single one of us as the church is moving this way. And then God says, I want you to choose faithful people who were doing those things well to lead you because you're all going in that direction, right? These are the marks of a healthy church. And so let's pray for each other and let's pray for our men specifically, right? That our church body would grow and be overflowing with all of us, but especially our men and who we need as leaders, We need our men. We need men who humbly desire the noble task of leading God's church well. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for today. We thank you for your word. I pray that it would convict us. I pray that it would encourage us. I pray that it would challenge us. But more than anything, I pray that the knowledge of the truth would help us grow in accordance with godliness. God, for me, I don't want to just leave this here as a good thing that I learned. God, would you help me grow as a man? Help me grow as an elder. Help me grow as a leader. Help me grow as a husband and a father. Would you help me in these things? I need you. God, I need you desperately. I fail um, so often, Lord. Would you help me? And would I always run back, God, to you? And so we pray this for our church. We pray that you would grow our church in Muskoka. God, to be healthy and just a bright, shining light in a dark place for your glory. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.